I heard the word Norwegian. <coughs> so let's start with a story about Norwegians and Bible translations. There are a lot of people out there in the secular universities who don't like Bible translators and are dead set against missionaries because there are all these wonderful primitive cultures around the world and these missionaries are imperialistic, colonialistic destroyers of culture. And the more you think about it, the more you sense the arrogance of those anthropologists who want to preserve some culture just so that they can come in and study this species of human beings and not care about things like we just heard that when somebody dies in a certain tribe, you have to celebrate for three days. You have to sacrifice pigs galore. You have to put on a grand show because if you don't, that dead person is going to come back to haunt you and cause sickness in your family and maybe even kill you. And so what do people groups like that do when they come to the Lord? They celebrate for one day with one pig instead of going broke you know, for days and days because they're not afraid of this person in their family who died. But these anthropologists know they just want to study. They could care less about the people. They're just curious. And now where does the Norwegian come in? There's a Bible translation program at the University of North Dakota, Summer Institute of Linguistics, it's called. And it succeeded so well that it was started in about five or six other universities. The anthropologists went to all these university presidents and got them to shut down all of those translation programs because these are missionaries out to destroy culture. <coughs> but they came to the president of the North Dakota University, and I'm not 100% sure this is a true story, but it's a really a good one. <coughs> he said, well, you know, we Norwegians, we're not known for following the crowd. And that's the only university that did not shut down the Bible translation program. But now, in the year 2000, a young fellow, Robert Woodbury, heard a lecture by a sociologist on the rise of liberal democracy. And the guy threw out a comment that he said, I've got a statistic here that seems to be hanging on wherever I study the rise of liberal democracy. Presence of Protestant missionaries. And I don't know what to do with it. So this young fellow said, that's going to be my doctorate. He went into it with such a tremendous thoroughness that he eventually got a big grant from a Christian foundation, had 30 researchers, checked 142 different societies, not just Europeans and Americans. And it turned out that the more he studied, the more he was flabbergasted. It wasn't just a side accidental factor. It was the major factor. And he wrote it up and went in the year 2010 to the head of the American Political Science magazine, top in its field in the States, and wanted him to publish an article. And the guy says, look, this is so controversial that I can't, I don't dare to publish it. Uh, give me more backup. So over the next two years, he gave him 192 pages because he had tried with his team to destroy the theory. 
because he knew it was so unacceptable to the university jungle out there. In fact, his doctor advisor said, this is fascinating what you're finding, but you're jeopardizing your academic career. They're all going to think you're crazy. And after those 192 pages, the editor of the American Political Science Review published his article, and it was entitled, The Missionary Roots of Liberal Democracy. And now think about it. He distinguished between state church, Protestants and Catholics, on the one hand, who sometimes just went along with the colonial policies and the imperialistic approach. But what he called conversionary Protestants, people who went out and lived among the people, who loved the people, who wanted them to know the story of Jesus and would translate into their mother tongues and then build schools where they could teach them how to read and schools through which native mother tongue local leaders could rise to positions of leadership. So that is now available. You can Google Robert Woodbury and find his article both in the American Political Science Review, Missionary Roots of Liberal Democracy, and also now in January of this year, Christianity Today, that was the cover article. So I'm just hoping there are people out there who are going to go back to those universities and say, you don't know what you're talking about. These people who loved other people were the central factor in a country developing stable democracy rather than dictatorships where then you have rebellion after rebellion and things are falling apart. Missionary Roots of Liberal Democracy, that's in the American Political Science Review. And I don't remember exactly what the title is. I actually had it with me uh, so that if somebody's interested afterwards, you can get the details. But now, let's just consider what my advisor at Yale University said, Reverend Child's Old Testament prof. He said, there's constant pressure on me just to shut down the Old Testament department, to make it part of the ancient Near Eastern languages and literatures, because it's just all the same. He was an evangelical Christian, and as long as he was around, it didn't happen. But that shows you what's out there. It's all just the same, because 150 years ago, the only thing we had about ancient history was the Bible. In the meantime, we know how to read Hittite and Egyptian hieroglyphics and ancient Akkadian and the Assyrians and the Babylonians, these peoples that I mentioned in the Bible. And we've got a lot of literature. And so what I want to do on this theme, Israel, a light to the nations, to take a look at Israelites in different periods and show something that's not similar. You come from a right-wing, ultra-conservative Christian background and you start studying the Bible, there are going to be things that shock you. You know, for example, that the temple that Solomon built is just like Canaanite temples with a porch, a sanctuary, and the innermost Holy of Holies. But the difference is that in the Holy of Holies was something to represent fertility power, you know, bull figurines, or a pregnant woman statue, or hands up raised in worship of a moon crescent or a sun disk. And nowhere in all of the ancient Near East was there a box in that Holy of Holies that said there's one God, and because of it you should live with respect toward one another. So we're going to look at a few of those things here as we breeze through Israel as the light to the nations.
first of all, try to find in the other literature that every single person has the image of God. doesn't matter if you're a king or a slave. You have the image of God in you, and God cares about you. Then think of Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. In you, all families of the earth will be blessed. I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. Now, all these cultures have prayers. They're all praying to some deity or another. Bless me, bless my wife, bless my kids, bless my flocks, bless my fields, give us victory in war. Everybody's praying. Prayers galore in all these literatures. But try to find in any of those literatures the expression, I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing. All families of the earth. It's a very humble calling. A proud Jew or a proud Christian is a contradiction in terms. Sometimes I'll tell a Jewish friend, hey, look, you are the chosen people and you're especially blessed, but it's for my sake. <laughs> you know, I'd be a Norwegian barbarian Viking still worshiping Odin and Thor. The storm gods, you know, to bring the rain, to bring the fertility. So Abraham, <coughs> father of faith, blessed to be a blessing. Jacob was a man of his times where deities were located. So if one country conquered another country, it meant our gods are stronger than your gods. And God said to him, if, no, what was this? God promised to bless him and to be with him wherever you go. That's not a concept of those days. And Jacob was a man of his times. He says, if you will be with me wherever I go, because that was a new idea. I promise that when I get back, you know the place with the angels going up and down, Bethel, place of divinity, I'll worship you here. And he did get back, and he did worship God in that same place. But it wasn't an idea that came just out of the culture. I'll be with you wherever you go. Then let's take Moses in the Torah. Torah, we translate as law, and that's a terrible disservice. I have about an hour-long lecture on the disaster of translating Torah as law. It is law. But it's so much more. It's instructions, it's guidance, it's teaching. How many of us would dance with a law book? But the Jewish people dance with the Torah scroll because it's God's love. He loved us so much that he gave us guidance. He gave us instructions how to live and says choose life and not death. It's a very different concept than just the laws that help us order our live lives. And in that Torah, it says, love God. Now try to find that in any of those other literatures. They have deities, but you don't love the deity. You're scared of the deity. You maybe respect the deity. Uh, you try to manipulate the deity because you want help you know, to have a healthy family or to have victory in war. But this idea that God loves, I just recently heard a sermon where the pastor made the point that when you get to the pearly gates, the one question you're going to be asked was, do you really believe that God loves you? A lot of us knowing the choices that we've made at one point or another are not all that totally convinced that God loves us. Because as we let that grow and take a hold of us, it makes a very different in fact, I think I'll take a little digression. 
I taught for 45 years that there were two most important questions in the world. Who do men say that I am? You know, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. All wrong answers, but at least in the right direction. And then he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the anointed one of God. And I thought that was the most important questions in the world. That's in Mark chapter 8. In Mark chapter 1, a demon-possessed man in the synagogue said, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So saying who he is, recognizing who he is, isn't the most important. So what is the most important? It's in the end of the Gospel of John, where after the resurrection, Jesus confronts Peter. Peter, do you love me? Peter, have you so understood that I am a God of love? that you are reacting in return and loving me back. I feel like a babe in Christ. I've been teaching as a Christian professor for all these years. It's only three years ago that it hit me that loving God is where it's at. And it's easy enough to find out what you love. Just think of what you did this last week, you know, where you spend your time. And you'll know what you love. Because if you love somebody, you want to spend time with them. And you're thinking, okay, what? would you like me to do now? Or what could I do to make you happy? I had an Orthodox Jewish rabbi who said, we Jews have an expression, it's hard to be a Jew because we have so many rules that we're supposed to follow. But you Christians, if you're serious about your rule, love, that's a lot harder because you will never sit back and think, well, okay, now I follow the rules and I, I'm, I'm okay. Because if you love somebody, you're trying to be creative and inventive. What else can I do that'll make this loved one happy? So it's scary to have led a life as a Christian teacher for all those years and not get the main point. Moses, love God. Solomon, will God indeed dwell on earth? He's dedicating the temple. The God's going to live in the temple. You feed them and clothe them and manipulate them if you can. And he says, but will God indeed dwell on earth? Heaven and the highest heaven can't contain you. How much less this house that I've built? Try to find that in any of the ancient Near Eastern literature. These ones who want to smooth it all out, they don't know what they're talking about. Now, the end of this section, before we go to the PowerPoint about Bible translation, has to do with prophecy. All cultures have prophecy. I mean, why not? Everybody would like to know the future, especially a king if he's deciding whether to go to war or not. He would like somebody who could tell him, shall I fight or shall I negotiate? You know, try to come to terms and not risk being run over and overwhelmed and maybe even destroyed. So there's prophecy all over the place. What's different about prophecy in the Bible is that the prophets had a higher standard than the kings. They had the Torah. God's instructions, and they called kings to account. Nathan succeeded. David repented when Nathan nailed him for his adultery. Jeremiah was thrown in a pit and would have died if there weren't some friends in the king's court who pulled him out and saved him. But that critique of the people and of the rulers is the key to the very survival of Israel. Because if you think about it, 
In the 730s BC, the Assyrian Empire was on the move out of Nineveh in modern Iraq and conquered the whole northeastern part of the country, the Golan Heights. 722, they conquered and destroyed Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Samaria. And 20 years later, 701 BC, they came and conquered all of Judah as well, and only Jerusalem survived. Now, what if Jerusalem had not survived? Do you remember the challenge of the Assyrian general? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad and Svarvayim and Hena and Eva and Samaria? They're all gone. Our gods are stronger than those gods. And if they had conquered, our gods are stronger than the God of Israel. And what do we know about the gods of those ones that I just read off? Gone. There's a big fat book, Deities and Demons, in the Bible, you know, describing what we know about all the different deities that are mentioned. Some very little, other than the name, and others we know quite a lot about the practices, even sacrificing humans. A little aside, Abraham, father of faith, not in my mind because he was ready to sacrifice Isaac. Other Canaanite kings were sacrificing children. There's a story in the Bible about how the king of Moab, who's a neighbor just across the Dead Sea, his entire kingdom had been conquered by the Israelites, and only Kir Moab, his capital city, was left. And when he was afraid the Israelites were going to break in, on the wall of the city he sacrificed his oldest son to the deity of the Moabites, and then there's a weird verse in the Bible that says, great wrath came over Israel and they all went home. My suspicion, without knowing, this is commentary now, is that they were superstitious enough so that when he saw he was that desperate, they decided, okay, we back off. So God showed Abraham, I don't want human beings killing other human beings for my sake. But animal substitute sacrifice is acceptable. And then you listen to these folks. I'm going to the academic jungle of Society of Biblical Literature. 10,000 Bible teachers from all over the states and about 25 of us from Israel that come every year. And you've got all the way from evangelical believers to degenerates that are deliberately, and I mean that full literal power of the word, deliberately out to undermine the Bible and to reinterpret it. So my theme was, at this point, the matter of prophecy and how you can go, let's say, to those conferences and hear lectures on this horrible Abraham story, you know, murder, kill your son. You know, what kind of a God is that will tell you murder your son? That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that God doesn't want that. Or if you have a low view of the... Trinity, what a horrible story in the New Testament that a God is ready to sacrifice his son. It's only if you have a high view of Christology that the three are one that God is giving of himself in Jesus. So you go from Canaanites who are ready to kill their children to please their gods to Abraham who is given divine revelation, that's not what I'm looking for, to Jesus who is showing it's giving of yourself that God really wants. Now, Jerusalem was spared in 701, a little after, more than 100 years ago. We run later. The Babylonians came, and they did destroy Jerusalem. So why didn't the Jewish people disappear? 
because in the meantime, the prophets had been speaking. And Isaiah had prophesied Jerusalem will not fall when it looked totally impossible. And he was a true prophet. It really didn't fall. And Jeremiah said, if you don't surrender, they're going to destroy you. He was a true prophet. And they didn't surrender, and they got destroyed. But because the prophets had been working in the meantime, instead of thinking our gods are not as strong as these Babylonian gods, they were able to understand our God is judging us for the way we abandoned his ways. So prophecy has been the reason for the continuation, the survival of the Jewish people. And then, of course, the Romans destroy the temple that was rebuilt after the Babylonian destruction. I got a real shock, uh, even though I've been teaching about 40 years at that time, when I visited the ruins of the Colosseum, holds about 40,000 people for the gladiatorial and the wild animal combat. A little blurb, Colosseum built by the spoils of the Jewish war. Well, that war from 66 AD until 70 AD, where the Roman legions came in, they killed a million Jews, they sold about hundreds of thousands into slavery, they issued a series of coins called Judea Capta, with a beautiful palm tree in the middle, and a proud Roman soldier on one side, and a woman all cowered down on the other side. Judah has been conquered. Judea Capta, the largest history of coins in the history of the Roman Empire. You can find it in bronze and silver and gold all the way from Spain to Israel. And yet, the Jews survived. Two branches of Judaism. The Jews say the first temple was destroyed because of idolatry. And it was the prophets that enabled them to understand that and to survive and not think that their God wasn't stronger than the other gods. The second temple was destroyed because of, in Hebrew it's sinat chinam, hatred for nothing. Hatred without cause. And they explain it as hatred between the different Jewish groups. They were so divided that when the Romans came in, they weren't able to stand up. And when you, more you study the history of that time, you think when Jesus says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight you realize that a charismatic leader like him would have everybody together, defeated the Romans, gone to conquer Rome itself, set up a dynasty. But he has a more difficult kingdom in mind. That's these kingdoms of coercion that sometimes last for centuries even. But he has a more difficult kingdom in mind, not coercion, persuasion. And everyone, one of my professors at St. Olaf Lutheran College, who was an art professor, said, never give up your right to go to hell. He said it is shock value for sure. But the idea is God gave us choice. And that choice is real. And you can, by your addictions of one kind or another or sins, go into a cage, lock the door, throw the key out of reach, and you're trapped. Without help, you're not going to get out. But you still have the image of God no matter what you did because you still have the option of repenting. And repentance just being broken before the Lord, and then he comes and opens the door. But until you realize your total dependence on him, that's not going to happen. And so here, two groups of Jews uh, did survive from all those that were fighting each other. Even the zealots were fighting among themselves, and Rome just wiped them out. Rabbinic Judaism and Messianic Judaism. Now, rabbinic Judaism among the Jewish people turned out to be the majority, but not by much. 
Because remember, in the New Testament, you read that there were 3,000 converted in one day when Peter gave a sermon. And a little later in the book of Acts, <coughs> it says something that almost no Bible translator dares to translate because of our prejudices. Some will say thousands of Jews became followers of Jesus. Some will say many thousands of Jews became followers of Jesus. But the text is using the word myriadoi, which we have in English, myriads. And every place else where that Greek word is translated, it is always translated tens of thousands. And they haven't dared to believe it. Tens of thousands of Jews became followers of Jesus. The Jewish people loved Jesus. It was the leaders who hated him. I mean, why was Jesus taken from Gethsemane in the middle of the night? It's because the leaders were scared of their own people. That's why they had to kind of get rid of him fast. If you have anti-Semitic friends, that's something you can use on them. Hey, the New Testament is not the source of that. The New Testament teaches that the Jewish people love Jesus. So in conclusion, <coughs> as we're seeing these factors in which what God revealed to the Jewish people really is a light, it's different from the pagan surrounding cultures. But what happened then 2,000 years ago. What's new about the New Testament? Not God, same God, not the people, same people, not the concepts, all the same concepts. But what's new is it happens. Son of God, Son of Man, suffering servant, Messiah, Jesus pulls them all together and then he is those things and it releases such a Holy Spirit energy that his followers realize this is too big to keep to ourselves. And then especially when he says, go from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. It's a change of era. It's a change from a time when the scribes have the authority of carefully copying the Hebrew script hundreds and hundreds of years for the Hebrew people. But when you get to the time of Jesus, the shift is from scribes to translators because this is too big to keep to ourselves. It's got to go out to the whole world and you have it inbuilt in the Bible, a Hebrew Old Testament, in which all the concepts are birthed, and the New Testament, which is in Greek, which is the international language of those days. And in the PowerPoint now, in a moment, we'll just look very quickly. A parting shot. Israel, a light to the nations nowadays, given what you hear about Israel in the media? Well, do a Google on Arab opinions about Israel. As much as I hate Israel, we Arabs have to learn from those Jews in matters of justice. In which of our countries is the president, the former president, in jail because of his sexual conduct? In which of our countries is a former prime minister on his way to jail because of his financial dealings? If we'd stand up and criticize, we'd be in jail or killed. We've got to learn from those Jews. So even in this backhanded way, Israel is still a light to the nations. And you'll find a lot of Arabs, not just the ones living in Israel, the ones living in the Palestinian areas, will prefer to be under Israeli rule because they have so much more rights. They can speak publicly what they think in such an open way. And you have this one stable democracy of Israel in that grand sea of countries around that are in such turmoil. So with that, I'd like to turn to our PowerPoint. Your word is the light.
to my feet and a lamp to my path. Those in red have civil war going on right now. Those in orange have what this chart is calling chaos. <laughs> Those in yellow unstable regimes. And so all these Muslim countries around Israel, one of the Bible statements about Ishmael is his hand is against everybody and everybody's hand is against him. If there are 26 conflicts in the Near East, only one of them is Jews and Arabs. But that's the one that gets the publicity here in the States. Not only, but to a large extent. Now look at here, 1949 was the largest immigration quarter of a million in one year. And then toward the right-hand side, the 90s, you had a million in a decade. And Ezekiel says the time is coming when you'll no longer say the Lord God who brought you out of Egypt, but the Lord God who brought you out of the North Country. And Moscow is north of Israel in the same time zone as Israel. So we're living in incredible times. <coughs> And here's something that my wife and I founded. We went to the Hebrew University 20 years ago, and we said, look, you're training people in medicine. You're training people in agriculture from countries around the world. What are you doing for Bible translators? Nothing. And let's look at what the situation is and see how they got so thrilled about this program. They ramrodded it through their academic and financial committees. Here's Jesus' command, repentance and forgiveness of sins to all nations. The whole world, to all nations, my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Well, there's Jerusalem. Dig a hole from there, right straight through the globe. And that's the opposite point. It's in the ocean down there near Australia, New Zealand. The largest city to that point is Christchurch, New Zealand. It has gone to the uttermost. But there's so many pockets in between that still don't have the gospel. This change from scribes to translators. From scribes. Faithfully copying, but for the Jewish people. And Jesus' command creates the need of translation in all languages. So what's the situation so far? Almost 7,000 languages in the world, and only 518 had a whole Bible. Just keep clicking. New Testament, Gospels. Let's hold that one. Well, OK, 1,700. Translations in progress, 500 of which are Old Testament translations. And we've had people speaking 72 different languages come through our program in Jerusalem. So we've already impacted over 10% of the existing projects. And our aim is to have at least one of our people on every one of those projects who actually knows <coughs> Hebrew and who has seen the land. But look. Over 2,000 languages, not a single word of scripture. So there's a lot of work yet to be done. What's the solution? Here's Jerome. He's kind of our hero from 
you know, turn of the century between the fourth and the fifth century. He was up to be elected for pope and he didn't get it. So instead, he went to Palestine, he already knew Greek, and he learned Hebrew from the Jewish rabbis in Bethlehem. In fact, that's where his chamber is, down in a cave grotto below the church of the Nativity, the place that commemorates Jesus' birth. Augustine got angry at him, because they lived at the same time, because he translated from Hebrew in it. He did it right. He translated from the original and from knowing the context of the land. That's him with his hand under the Bible, and Eusebius, his secretary, Paula, and her secretary, Eustatia. This symbolizes what we're all about. Translators on the right, if you know any people, if some of you have a flair for languages, who knows but what God might touch you to enter into this world of spreading his word. And on the right are his supporters. Paula was a wealthy Roman woman who was so supportive of him that she moved from Rome to Palestine to be there and to support his work. And that every one of you can be to pray for the work of Bible translators. Wycliffe, probably the biggest Bible translation organization out there. Some 6,000 people, uh, more than half are support personnel, but maybe 2,000 actually working in Bible translation. They have to cook up their own support. So it's uh, not just the work of translating, it's being able to do what I'm doing now, you know, telling people to pray for the project. He was so famous as a professor at Oxford that when he began translating from Jerome's Vulgate translation to English, he was fired from his professorship at Oxford University for daring to put the scriptures, which were only for the priests, into language that anybody could understand. So they fired him from his vicious and they didn't dare to touch him other than that. But after he was dead, they dug up his body and burned it and threw the ashes in the Thames River and somebody said, yeah, now his influence is going to the whole world. <laughs> Tyndale, he was a disciple of Luther and he translated from Hebrew. So he's in the background of our King James Version. A little less than 100 years after him. Now Tyndale was translating into English, he fled to Germany for fear for his life. And they sent spies pretending to be the disciple looking for him. And they caught him and they smuggled him out of Germany. Back, if you go to Oxford, there's one of the main streets of Oxford and there's a metal plaque in the middle of the street. Here's where William Tyndale was burned alive at the stake because he translated the Bible into English. So it's at a cost that we have our translations of the scriptures. Next. So right here between Europe, Asia, and Africa, between the ocean and the desert, between heaven and earth, is where Jerusalem is located with that message destined to go to the whole world. And here's a facility that we rented for 13 years just on the outskirts of Jerusalem in a place called Nebuchadnezzar, bringer of glad tidings. Nebuchadnezzar, Sion, bringer of glad tidings design is the full name of the village. Uh, we were able to buy that some years ago. But in the meantime, the owner had been trying for years to sell it. And 
how to keep a long story short, we bought 800 logs, you know, a cabin kit on a storage lot in Finland. And then money came through all of a sudden to purchase this. And so what did the Finns do? They put 50 tons of stuff into three sea-going containers and shipped it to Israel. And over the course of three years, 40 Finnish professionals, all the way from cement layers to electricians, put the thing together and have a beautiful facility. That's a whole other thing that I'm skipping over, but I have to mention it. A home away from home, because we take care of everything except their eating, sleeping, and studying. Because the program should be two years. They don't have the time. They don't have the money. And so we just cram them. I mean, they are so highly motivated, and so are we. One of them said, touch my head. It's hot. The microprocessor is running over time. I need a fan installed. Let's just, let's just keep clicking now. Now, here's jargon. Linguistic jargon, how to reduce the artificiality of the cognitive environment of somebody. It just means how to get rid of their wrong ideas. Let's go. The Rothberg International School for Overseas Students of the Hebrew University on Mount Scopus, which is just the northern extension of the Mount of Olives. So that's where we study. Our program runs one year in English, one year in French, a six-month program. One of a kind, because you're studying the language in the original context, in the land. So Biblical Hebrew is, of course, the concentration. Just keep clicking. Whoops, stop on that one. All the basic concepts were born in Hebrew. So I've got slogans. If you want to understand the Bible more deeply, you study Hebrew. If you want to understand how to communicate, you study Greek. Because the Greek New Testament is how to take these concepts and spread them to another language, to another culture. Okay. But the missing piece is the land. Because you can study Hebrew all over the world at different Bible colleges and seminaries. But to be able to do it in the land where you're not just falling asleep over vocabulary, this, but you're saying it, you're hearing it, you're acting it out. A living language of communication. And then the land itself, of course. So here, CE, cognitive environment, that's the world of the Bible on the left. On the right are five kings from Togo. And you see there's some overlap because they're human beings. And then you bring in an expatriate with his English Bible. And so there's some overlap there of all of them. But our hope is to take people from their foreign cultures bring them to the land of Israel so that the one pink triangle more overlaps and they'll be more at home in the world of the Bible. So here's what we've done in 20 years. Just keep clicking now. S Central Africa, West Africa, East Africa, and Asia. Click again. Now here are the countries and the languages uh, Togo, just as one example, has uh, 40 different languages. Nigeria has, no, 70 different languages. Nigeria has 400 different languages. Papua New Guinea has 800 different languages because it's such high mountains that each mountain practically has its own language because there's footpaths you know, between them, not even any roads. Instruction. 
Well, most of our translations say the law will go forth from Zion. That's true, but it's so much more. Instruction will go forth from Zion. So let's just click through these from Jerusalem and prayer that any one of you can do. And with that, we'll conclude. A parting shot having to do with geography is God could have chosen to let Jesus come to the country with the highest point in the whole world, Mount Everest. Instead, he sent Jesus to the country with the lowest point on the surface of the entire globe. And Jesus goes down. Isaiah prayed, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. How far down is he ready to come? Or Solomon, will God indeed dwell on earth? Well, he knew that the temple wouldn't contain him. But yes, God did dwell on earth. He comes down near the lowest place on the surface of the entire globe, goes still further down under the waters of the Jordan because the traditional place is right near the Dead Sea. And John tries to stop him and say, you don't need to do this. And Jesus said, but I must, for righteousness' sake, for the rightness of totally identifying with us. And then with his ability to take that key and open the door again and restore the image of God in any one of us. I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And that's what God said to Abraham. In you, all nations will be blessed. Called to be servants. Amen. So what does it feel like to be living in a, a land that is hated by many and much of the news uh, creates that? What is the climate? How do you feel today as you are in Israel and uh, there are threats against Israel? What, what is it like for people who are living there? Question is uh, we happily know the end of the story, but there are a lot of Israelis who don't. And so there's really a heavy mood in Israel because Hamas, Muslim terrorists in the Gaza Strip, and Hezbollah, Muslim terrorists in Lebanon in the north, we love death, and that's why we're going to beat you because you love life. Think about the prisoner exchange, 1,000 Muslim terrorists for one Israeli soldier. So the parliament has now made a rule, we're never going to do that again because it makes <coughs> the kidnapping too attractive. <coughs> and so Israel <coughs> Air Force bombs the smithereens out of Gaza Strip in terms of, yeah, thanks, hitting the ammunition dumps. Hamas knows that is well here, gold in my ear said we can forgive the air boys for killing our boys. What we can't forgive is that we have to kill them just in order to stay here and have our own one little Jewish state in the whole world. Israelis are not like on the media, I've had people come up and say, Israelis kill children. Well, what they do in this last one was if you, Hamas, decide to put your ammunition dump under a school or under a mosque or under a hospital, 
that was your decision. We're not after those kids. We're not after the sick people. We're not after your religious worshiping. We're just after the ammunition dumps because we're not going to just sit like we're sitting now. If you're in the town of Shderot, nowadays it can even be Beersheba, you don't know when a missile will come right through here and explode. In Shderot, you only have a matter of maybe 10 seconds to dive for one of the bus stops where they've been made protected or something like that. So nobody wins because you can bomb as much as you want and they're going off to heaven for being martyrs. And you set them back for a few years so they'll be quiet for a while. But they've got all that underground tunnel system. The Israelis, I'm sure, didn't get all of it. So anytime they want. In fact, you can take fertilizer and make a homemade rocket and you know, fire it in. Same thing in the north. Thousands of missiles in the caves in Lebanon. So Israelis just wiped out a whole apartment complex, which was the headquarters of Hezbollah on the outskirts of Beirut. So they've been quiet for years now. But the Israelis didn't win, because anytime they want, they can just start shooting again. And they don't care that the Israelis come and bomb, because it gives Israel a bad name in the world media. Uh, that's why they deliberately put their bombs under the churches, uh, not churches, the mosques, and the hospitals, and the schools. So it's very heavy mood. Uh, one woman I heard on the radio recently was saying, I'm you know, dyed in the wool Zionist, and I'm happy that I'm here, and that I'm raising my kids here, but our future is so bleak. Is it dangerous for you? No, I've never had that thought. I mean, our teenage girls would take the bus and go anywhere in Jerusalem that they pleased. So uh, I'd rather raise kids over there than in the American jungle. I mean, being a teenager here is really tough, you know, with all the uh, things that'll draw you away from the Lord. Question? No question? I had a teacher who would say, that could be a good sign or a bad sign. <laughs> a good sign, everything is so perfectly clear, or a bad sign, you didn't understand enough to ask a question. Here's one, and there's another. Are you feeling the support? I listen to a lot of talk radio, and Rush Limbaugh, and Dennis Prager, and Michael Medved, and on and on and on. They're all speaking. They're turning the cover off the lies about Palestinians being persecuted. They're pointing out exactly what you're saying, that the They know that there are multiple millions, maybe even tens of millions of Americans who are favorable. But uh, the present political climate is not one that encourages Israel to feel that uh, they're getting the support that they could have gotten from the states. <coughs> Probably like what I said, you know, the people can love Israel <laughs> and the government not. <coughs> Question from Doc. Yeah, 
Yeah, I'm sure you're well aware that that's a tremendous debate and battleground, and I won't be able to solve it for you. All Israel will be saved. Most Arabs will say, even Arab Christians, I'm first an Arab, then a Christian. If you find an Arab who said, I'm first a Christian, then an Arab, you can find some of the finest men and women of God that you could ever hope to meet. And there are some of them, like there's a book, I Was Arafat's Hitman, by Tas Sada, I think is his name. And he was a sniper for, for Arafat. And he loved killing Jews and killing enemies of Arafat. <coughs> then he came to the States to study. And there's a whole book about it now. He came to the Lord, and he will stand in front of groups of people and say, I love Jews. The Holy Spirit has put in my heart a love for Jewish people. I understand that this isn't just chance that you have a whole nation of refugees. Most of those Jews would be happier back in the States or back in Germany in terms of cultural identification. But they're scared, and so they're coming to Israel. <coughs> I sometimes explain Israeli dynamism in this way, that all the Jews who are more relaxed types, you know, this will blow over. You know, we love Germany. You know, nothing ultimately evil can happen to us. All those Jews are gone. They stayed. Six million of them got wiped out. So who have we got in Israel is one with a radar, you know. And then put them all together in one little country. One of the Israelis said if our neighbors were smart, they'd all make peace with us and we'd explode from inside because of all of our differences <laughs> and so on. But, but they force us to get along just in order to survive. <coughs> One thing that I'd like to add as you're thinking about last few questions is I learned it from the head of the Propaganda Institute in London. He travels around the world telling people how to argue their case. In this case, there were about 130 of us Israeli government-licensed tour guides. He was saying how to present Israel to the tour groups that were guiding. And there are about 30 Muslim Arab tour guides, also you know, Israeli Arabs, listening to how do the Jews do it. Because <coughs> he was an ultra-orthodox, not ultra, he was an orthodox Jew from London. And he really helped me open my eyes. He said, think about television. The television station managers could care less about you and me. Who do they care about? The big advertisers. And what are they selling to the big advertisers? Is viewing audience. How do you get maximum viewing audience for your television station, and he said, violence, sex, humor, and sports, maybe even in that order. Now, when you realize that one television station manager, in order to compete with the other one, has to show more violence because that'll glue us to the tube, and then the advertisers can hit us. But he's selling viewing audience. It really makes you cynical. And if you'll think over the last 10, 15, 20 years, the direction of American television, I mean, how it has to be more and more gory, it has to be more paranormal, you know, weird, weird stuff, because they're out to show violence, to glue us to the tube so the advertisers can hit us. And that's why Israel, as a little country, probably has more press corps there than anywhere else, because they're just looking for a chance. And if they find the bomb scene, they'll play it over and over again so that you get glued to the tube. 
So that helps, I think, quite a bit. I can come and watch television here and get scared about living in Israel. You know, but at home, we're just going about our everyday lives. Although now, just in the last week that I've been gone, uh, things have heated up somewhat in Jerusalem. And what I explain as a tour guide is that there can be a big traffic accident at some intersection and there'll be police and sirens and fire trucks. And, you know, and a few hours later, it's all cleared away and the traffic is going. And that's the way with these demonstrations that look so bad on TV. A few hours later, there's traffic as normal in that area. And as tour guide, uh, where I've been in troubled times too, you, you avoid an area where you know there are demonstrations. Maybe for a day or two, you don't go to Bethlehem until things calm down. So that'd be the worst if you came on a tour group, and maybe it wouldn't calm down just within a week. And so you, you'd miss Bethlehem. That's, that's a potential. But uh, there is so much. Going to a land that has 4,000 years of history is information overload. You know, and people who have Bible background, I can just pour it on because they know the basics and they're getting confirmation, they're getting visual aid. Whereas somebody who doesn't have much Bible background, it's just, it doesn't matter how intelligent they are, it's information overload and they start you know, dozing off in the bus. And then I realize, okay, cut back running. <coughs> He's getting personal now because I took a, a group. Um, we were in California, and we we went on the bus, and I sat near the front so I could help him out. And as he lectured, I, the, s the morning sun was beating down upon me, and I... Excuse me. Uh. <laughs> Actually, since he started it, uh, I just remember that you had asked Halver, you know, could you be our guide? And I remember hearing that you said, well, I don't really do that anymore because people do fall asleep. And Paul said, oh, no, I've prepared my people, and they really know the Bible, and this is going to be, it's going to be good. And so finally Halver just said, oh, well, all right, I'll do that. Uh, and, and <laughs> you know uh, I think this is getting buttered we up. Br <laughs> we brought our son, uh, Israel. He was, you know, a baby at that time. Uh, nine months and he old. He almost got his name and his picture yes. in the Jerusalem Post because his name was Israel. They thought that's cool. <laughs> and yeah. to oh boy. that off was that that Israel, of course, is on jet lag and and uh, uh, wide awake in the middle of the night. And Paul was so gracious to I'll stay awake with him. I'm oh, thank you, thank you. So I had a good sleep, but then in the morning, um, Paul and Israel, you know, they don't drink coffee. And I drank coffee, so I was wide awake in that front seat. And I kept poking Paul because, as he said, the sun is next. Well, you're starting out the day at midnight, 8 a.m. Yeah. There is midnight here. So and, you, and the first days are midnight tours. He's got the warm <coughs> baby falling asleep on him. And so, Oliver, you have to forgive him for that one. Yeah, thank you, honey. That was kind of you <laughs> exposed me like that. Yeah. Yes, she was. Yeah. One more. Okay. I don't know if I need a microphone, but I've been in Israel during a war, and the, the floor-to-ceiling windows in a downtown hotel were shuttering. Oh. The shelling was, oh, from here to not even Rosedale Mall. Safe as can be. Felt so peaceful. Everyone in our tour, we weren't talking. We were concerned that
But other than that, it's peaceful, even in times of war, when you have the Lord. Yeah. And you're called yeah. to be there. You're called to be there. Yeah. Yeah. I will uh, share one thing that's a bit on the radical side, but it was even before 2000 when the suicide bombing started. I mean, Israelis will go all out for peace. I mean, they gave Sinai and its oil wells back to Egypt in hopes for peace. And there is. You can drive back and forth between Cairo and Egypt. Not that you'd want to do it with the trouble that they have down there now, but you can. Let's see if I'm going to maintain my line of thought. Uh, nope. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Starts with <laughs> senior moment. I'm going to give the benediction, and then if he gets it, we'll go with that. Otherwise, uh, we'll just take a moment to pray with someone close to you, pray related to any personal needs that you may have, any desires that the Lord is putting on your heart, any uh, needs, any desire for breakthrough, or for Israel. That'd be wonderful to pray for Israel as well. Uh, and I'm going to give you the benediction. It comes right out of the instruction of the Lord right from Numbers 6 where God gave, spoke to Moses and told him to give it to Aaron and Aaron to the people and it's it's an invitation to receive from God's nature the God of peace so it's not a nice way to end a service it's a way to convey the very character of God so you re you can receive this you can catch it if you want to you can hold out your hands uh, to receive it as it comes to you. Here it goes. The Lord bless you, favor you, and keep you. In other words, protect you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. May he look on you and look on you in such a way that he shines on you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and keep you. The Lord bless you with his favor, with all good things, and give you his peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.